We're going to kick things off today. Hopefully when you leave at the end of our discussion, after 40 minutes, you will have a good sense of the C-level uh, executive teams, what's, what trends with departures, turnover, unretirement, retirement, new positions in the C-suite that our esteemed panelists are seeing. We have a really interesting collective uh, of perspectives here today that we're going to dive into. So like I said, we're going to touch on turnover, um, the next generation of healthcare leadership. We do have some prepared questions that we're going to dive into. Before we do that, I'm going to ask panelists to share a little bit about where they come from and you can understand their perspective in this conversation. And then we'll dive in, hopefully with some time at the end, to check in with you all and see if there's any questions you might have for them. So with that, Jessica, I'll turn to you and ask you to introduce yourself first. Cool. Good morning, everybody. I'm Jessica Calzaretta. I'm with Insight Global Health. We're a staffing services company, and a huge component of that service offering includes direct placement and executive search. It's really excited to be here this morning. Thank Thanks you for Jessica having me. for being here. Scott? Good morning, Molly. Scott Nygaard. Um, I'm the Chief Operating Officer at Lee Health in Fort Myers, Florida. Um, we're a public safety net <coughs> system there, about 1,620 beds, about 1,000. Um, providers and uh, about two and a half billion in revenue. Thanks, Scott. And then Rick. Yeah, good morning. Uh, Rick Shumway from Stanford Healthcare. Uh, and I, I promise this is the most popular session. It doesn't seem that way because there are 16,000 seats here. Um, but we're re really excited to be here. <clears throat> My responsibilities for Stanford include uh, really overseeing the East Bay the East San Francisco Bay, and then California's Central Valley, so from about Sacramento to Fresno. We have various assets and otherwise that, uh, that comprise that. So looking forward to the conversation today. Thanks, Rick. Well, let's start with a lay of the land. Sea level turnover, it's been a wild ride since the start of the pandemic. In February 2020, ZipRecruiter found an average of 22,000 active C-suite level job openings advertised. And then you look to that number in May 2020, it plunged to about 9,000, then rebounded, hitting 4,000 in October. So that's some big fluctuation in figures, Jessica. Um, how has turnover been from your perspective, uh, the broad scale? Um, and what are you seeing in terms of re early retirements, planned retirements, resignations? Can you, can you speak to some broad trends? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, executive search demand has skyrocketed, um, specifically in the first quarter of this year. In fact, our volumes for executive search placements was larger in Q1 than all of 2021 combined. So I just think that speaks to the incredibly dynamic situation that so many healthcare organizations are wrestling with right now. Um, in, in terms of resignations, early exits, I mean, I, I just think there's a lot of movement. I think the competitive nature of executive search right now is unprecedented. Healthcare is no longer simply competing with other healthcare organizations. If you think about the new entrance of commercial organizations like Walmart and Amazon that are seeking this talent, the landscape has just gotten incredibly competitive. Uh, and I think that's posed some new challenges for many healthcare institutions across the country. And Rick, what have you seen at Stanford? How has turnover been among your senior team and, and how would you describe the past couple of years? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we all collectively feel like we're pretty stable at any given moment in time, but the reality is we're not, and I think that that's true at Stanford and anywhere else. As I look over the last couple of years, we're probably looking at about 20 to 25 percent organizational executive turnover, um, and it's for all the reasons that you sort of talked about. Um, they're, 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 the environment has changed so rapidly and dramatically that I think the motivations for uh, various individuals uh, have potentially changed. Um, we've seen uh, senior level executives move into tech, as mm -hmm. you said. We've seen uh, people 
uh, want to find a different location given the, the pressures of the Bay Area and otherwise, um, but it's, it's pretty dynamic. <clears throat> the other piece that I think I, that 25% misses is the people that we almost lost um, and, and we're constantly in this sort of battle uh, to retain uh, the people that we actually do have. So I think that's really critical. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Dr. Nygaard, I mean, as COO of Lee Health, if, if uh, your colleague Rick has seen about 20, 25% executive turnover, how does that compare to Lee Health? Uh, anything worth noting, anything different that you're seeing at your organization? Um, I would say at Lee Health, um, we were fortunate. We only had one of our 13 of senior leaders actually turn over, and that was somebody who had a new developmental opportunity, somebody we'd been developing internally and uh, just found a new job. Uh, so we were fortunate we didn't have a lot of turnover. We did go through early phase of the pandemic, a bit of an internal restructure and reorganized uh, to a kind of better align for the future. Um, we also went through a strategic planning process internally, and then of late, I would say the greatest thing is the addition of new talent and roles to the system for future growth um, as we're going forward. So we've added a number of executive leadership roles to the team. Yeah, just to add some color from my perspective, because I think you're spot on, Dr. Nygaard. Uh, for us, our executive search volumes, again, have been unprecedented in terms of demand, but 65% of that volume has been for net new positions. So it just highlights that organizations are trying to make investments into new areas of the business as they think about restructuring or just what the competitive landscape moving forward will be. And of those 65% being net new positions, what would you say the leading few are? Are you seeing some commonalities of what those new roles? Yeah, definitely. Uh, the top two are diversity, equity, and inclusion okay. leadership roles. And then the second is all around digital transformation, especially as hospitals and healthcare organizations think about how they're going to automate functions and digitize certain um, aspects of the organization just to improve experience overall mm -hmm. for both their internal employees and, of course, the patients. So We've had three new DEI executive positions at Stanford, one at the university and two at the health system, and that's all materialized over the course of the last year, uh, and then the subsequent structures that support those, so absolutely seeing a, a trend uh, in that, that direction for sure. And Jessica, when you talk about the net new positions, what would you say is the timeline you typically see from when the job is created and advertised and posted and you, you become aware of it to when it's filled? Yeah, that, that's a good question. It, it really does vary. And I will say that the organizations who win in procuring the top talent are the organizations who really prioritize that role and filling that role, who really think about making the interview process and the vetting process really seamless. You know, gone are the days where you know, you would have anywhere from seven to 10 candidates presented on a short list, you then whittle that down to three to five, you take them through six rounds of interviews. I mean, if that's how your organization is operating, unfortunately, you're gonna lose because, again, the competitive landscape that we're in right now, the organizations who are moving swiftly to identify talent and to make those decisive moves, those are the ones that are ultimately winning. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Rick, you know, you're in the tech, the tech bubble uh, front and center. Are you, do you know any colleagues who have left for big tech? And if so, is, can you speak to anything that drew them? What made a difference to make that decision? Uh, so, so the answer is yes. Uh, and it's, it's interesting. It doesn't, sometimes the, the proclivity when we have that conversation is to think that it just happens in the IT sector and that we're getting sort of push and pull from our, our colleagues in tech. It's happening in operations, it's happening in strategy, it's happening in IT, it's happening sort of everywhere. Um, and, and I think uh, to the point that was just made, it's really critically important to know that you have to be fast, you have to be nimble. Uh, but I think the other piece that's critically important is you have to be developing an organizational structure 
that's satisfactory uh, to people. Um, we spend a lot of time on recruitment. We spend a lot of time on identifying talent, but it's equally important to ensure that the environment that you're that you're promoting uh, is is good for the people that you have. Um, it's it's harder to get somebody than it is to, to retain somebody, and I think that that's been the key for us. But yes, we are absolutely seeing impact from uh, our colleagues in other industries. Uh, in Silicon Valley and other places, for mm -hmm. sure. Well, and the other thing to call it, too, is just with the abundance of now remote options for mm -hmm. candidates, especially at the executive level. You know, Rick, I'm sure you're not just competing with the Silicon Valley, although that is an incredibly competitive market, <laughs> I know firsthand. You're competing across the whole country now, mm -hmm. across multiple industries. And I think just being aware of that fact and then having a strategy for how you're going to recruit in light of those circumstances is really critical. Mm -hmm. well, we're talking about how to fortify the talent talent pipeline in the executive uh, C-suites in hospitals, and I want to touch on succession planning. That was hardly a sure thing pre-pandemic at many companies, not just in healthcare. Has the pandemic-born sporadic nature of executive turnover, the competitive nature of recruitment, has that brought new energy and, and need for sound succession plans? Dr. Nygaard, have you seen a change at Lee Health, or were you already in pretty good shape to begin with? Well, I'd say we're in pretty good shape and we've got a pretty strong senior team, but you always do think about kind of the future and what's your responsibility and stewardship um, to the future. Um, I think oftentimes it's a pretty uncomfortable conversation as executives look around and think I might be developing my future uh, talent, and it's not a guarantee that they would necessarily get the job per se, but that they would have opportunity. The one person that I talked about that left our organization voluntarily really was one of those people we developed and had the ability to go someplace else and had to seize the opportunity when they had the moment. So it was good for them. Um, I think if you're a strong organization, you're developing your people, you're going to find that some are going to naturally leave. You just don't have all those roles and opportunities uh, for everyone in the system based on kind of season and timing of the other members of the executive team. Um, and so um, recently, as we went through recent reorg, one of the big thoughts was what is our stewardship and responsibility for the future? in terms of how we look to create new roles and new opportunities and develop talent that is needed, you know, after some of us would plan to retire or exit the organization. Not imminent, but just good stewardship. Mm -hmm. I think that's amazing that you're thinking and prioritizing that because we're, one of the, you know, failure points that I, I would call out that we see across a lot of organizations is one, they're very reactive when it comes to succession mm -hmm. planning. Um, and again, when you're reactive, you're forced to make very quick decisions or you're forced maybe to make the wrong decisions, which can have a really negative ripple effect, as I'm sure many people can relate to. But the other thing is, you know, especially if you consider frontline staff that maybe have developmental opportunities to move into managerial positions or more responsibility, a lot of times those conversations stop at the VP and above level because it can be a little awkward mm -hmm. to think, okay, yeah, I am going to ultimately develop you maybe to take my role or to move up. Those conversations sometimes aren't always top of mind. But because it's so competitive right now, it's so imperative that leaders at the top are really thinking about intentional succession planning, but very direct and honest candor with the folks that they're considering so that those individuals know where they stand and know that they could have a future within that organization because otherwise, you know, the risk that you run is that they're gonna start entertaining other opportunities. And the time capital to go out and find a new executive <laughs> is uh, it's pretty intense. And so if you don't have to do that because you have retention mechanisms, in your organization and developmental models, especially at the highest level, you're going to make your life a lot easier. Just 
pick up briefly on the <clears throat> the comment about how we're identifying our successors. You know, it's been an interesting couple of years for us for a couple of reasons. I think. Uh, generally speaking, the rule of thumb uh, at Stanford is you have to have at least one or two people on your team that could take your job at any time. And I think that that has been an interesting cultural evolution, uh, of course, because it does introduce some, some different dynamics. But I think what we've seen is it obviously makes your organization better because you've got better people that are operating at all of the different levels. Uh, and then, of course, when a, a succession plan actually has to be executed, you've got something ready to roll. Um, I will say, though, that it's been an interesting couple of years because uh, even though we were in pretty good shape with that prior to the pandemic, uh, our attentions turned, right? We all sort of pivoted in the ways that we all had to. Uh, but what we're starting to see now is uh, a return to a little more of the rigor. Because I would say over the last two years, this has not been as much of a priority and as much of a focus as have other things. Uh, and so uh, we've experienced uh, cycles where somebody has left in the middle of the pandemic and we are scrambling a little bit, even though we had some, uh, some structures in place and, and otherwise. And so I think what we're kind of returning to is, is the, the, the same structure and a little more focused than we had in the past. So uh, that's what we're kind of starting to see in our organization. I want to double click on that, Rick. So the move to anti-fragility where you have at least one or two people on your team who can assume your position should something occur. How long did the shift take to that culture? Because I imagine that is not, like you said, it takes a while to adjust to that. And then two, does that present any challenges worth noting for the leaders of that team if you have one or two people alongside you who at any given moment could step right in? Uh, yeah, it takes time. Uh, I'll give you the first cliche of your morning. I'm sure you'll hear a couple <laughs> of them, but it of course starts at the very, very top of the organization. Uh, if that expectation is made uh, by the CEO, uh, by the board chair, by the board of directors and others, uh, that's one way to really start to affect culture in a meaningful way. At Stanford, we've certainly seen that uh, uh, accelerated because of the commitment from our uh, senior most executive leaders at the organization. So that's really critically important, but it does take time. Uh, it takes time uh, and everybody's not the same. And so I think that as we've thought about it, uh, we've had to be pretty deliberate with, with every person on the executive team. Uh, each of those plans is pretty individualized, right? Uh, the CNOs is not the same as the CFOs, is not the same as the CEOs and otherwise. Uh, and so it's been an individual process as much as it's been sort of a cultural change process as well, trying to understand where people are at and meet them, meet them at that place. Mm -hmm. Jessica, how would you respond if, a, if an executive at an organization, if things kind of fall off at the VP level, like you said, there's not much visibility into what's next, where do I grow from here, what opportunities await me? Uh, if an executive is reluctant to embrace succession planning, what are some responses or things you could say to perhaps further that conversation? Well, I think the first is to just be educated about the market environment that you're entering into. Um, because frankly, it's a lot more expensive to use a company like ours than it is to develop your talent from within. And so it is, it is very advantageous to start thinking about creating developmental programs. In fact, one just real example, a couple months ago, we had uh, a client 
that wanted to start exploring candidates for C-level role. And after we were able to walk through what the market was looking like, what that investment was gonna need to look like from a salary perspective to be able to get the candidate with all the qualifications that that client was seeking, they ultimately said thanks but no thanks and went back to the drawing board internally and realized it was gonna be a lot more advantageous for them to create succession planning across the VP and presidential level candidates that they were considering or that they had available to them. Um, because the other thing to keep in mind is that there really is no such thing as the perfect candidate out there. Sometimes I think we have falsehoods imagining that the best possible candidate exists out in the marketplace, but likely those that are within your own four walls that understand the nuances of your system or the culture or the organization, maybe they have more of a you know, a touch to the workforce that they would ultimately be overseeing. I mean, that's really powerful. And especially if you consider retention in the lower ranks in the organization, that matters a lot to the workforce today is to see leaders that identify with the culture and the nuances of the place that they go to work every day. Um, and so I would just call those things out. Um, might be a little counterintuitive because I'm talking myself out of a job <laughs> by doing that, but, but it really is important to us that we educate our clients and really make them aware about all of the nuances and just the factors that go into making such a big investment at this level. Mm -hmm. So no perfect candidate, but let's talk about what today makes a better candidate. Uh, obviously the pandemic has ushered in a intensified focus, rightfully so, on public health, on health equity, not just in healthcare, but in the, for the world. I, I want to talk about how this has perhaps changed any of the skills, talents, strengths that you have renewed appreciation for on your teams. Dr. Nygaard, does anything now come to a higher priority than it did perhaps three years ago? Yeah, I, th I think as we've gone forward, just trying to think about what it means to formulate a culture, one of the things we did as a senior leadership group during the pandemic is kind of did some coursework called Radical Collaboration. And you know, you think, well, that sounds easy to do, but it's a lot harder to do than you might think it is in terms of trying to work together. A lot of times we've become fairly territorial. That's my P&L, that's my silo, that's my vertical, that's what I'm supposed to be um, responsible for. And so sometimes it's viewed as weakness, kind of collaborating across those boundaries. So we spent some focused time on that, trying to emulate behaviors that we felt we wanted in our workforce in terms of how they work together. Um, you know, the word system thinking is probably overutilized, but really understanding is healthcare is becoming more integrated and complex across the horizon. What parts should we be doing? What parts should we be kind of uh, partnering with somebody else in the community um, and building relationships? And that does take a certain um, skill set. Um, how do we empower others? I think Jessica mentioned that a little bit in our middle uh, workforce. You know, really, I think we've underinvested there, if we were honest with ourselves. Uh, at Lee. Uh, there's more opportunity to develop those people. That's a longer pipeline of talent that'll be retained in the organization that is good for the culture and good um, for the overall um, organization. Um, and uh, the other one that comes to mind is just a lot more self-awareness. How do I actually show up and impact others? Because a lot of what we do isn't what we always say, it's how we actually show up and uh, you know our own authenticity and how we um, treat and listen to our people. Um, so those are a few thoughts, mm -hmm. I think, in terms of skill sets we're seeing we need more of in our senior team. Mm -hmm. So solid self-awareness, ability to collaborate while not territorial about where your role might fall, empowering others. Rick, what would you add to this running tally? Oh, there are probably two that come to mind. I, I agree with all of those. Uh, <laughs> they're spot on. Uh, the, the two that come to mind for me are, are moving beyond sort of the content expertise. Uh, we focus so much on, again, whether or not a CFO 
is a good steward of the financial resources of the organization. And of course, that has to be a baseline for somebody in that role. Uh, but the things that I've become much more appreciative of over the course of the last two years is that I actually need my CFO to be much more of a global thinker than just a finance manager. I need the CNO to actually be able to look beyond nursing uh, and patient care services to ensure that we're, we're moving organizationally in the ways that we need to. So as I look at candidates and as I look at my own internal team members, um, that's certainly something that I've become much more appreciative of is not just the silos, but, and, but really the moving beyond sort of the content base that each of us bring to the table uh, to look more globally. Uh, you know, the other piece that I think all of us have probably experienced to one extent or another is I also appreciate people that can be kind and people that can be respectful. Um, this has been a tough, tough two years. Uh, and uh, we have seen, at least I have seen, and my team and others, uh, people that really excel at that and people that don't. And I've seen the impact of, of, the, the, of either one of those scenarios. Uh, and I will tell you that um, uh, the ones that exhibit that are the ones that I want on my team. Um, and so uh, those are things that I've become much more appreciative of and will continue to focus on in the future for internal and external development development. Yeah, Rick, I think you're spot on. Empathy or being an empathetic leader I think has never been more important. Having a high degree of emotional intelligence to be able to understand and meet your people where they are I think is critical for success, especially at the executive level. One that I'll add just to this list, and I agree with all of the ones that have been mentioned, um, is inclusivity. A leader that has demonstrated the ability to be inclusive, who really um, has, again, that emotional intelligence and empathy to be able to meet all of the workforce where they are. In fact, that's a trait, there was a study done by this woman named Sarah Hewlett. She studies executive leadership. And the, the trait of inclusivity actually has never really existed in the top 10 traits of what makes an executive leader highly respected or sought after. But just this past year, that grew to number five on the list. And so I do think it speaks to, again, a little bit of what we talked about around the need for um, building systems and practices that really reinforce DE&I in your organization. And that's not important just for executives, it's important because, and I'll age myself for a minute, but my generation, those that are coming into the workforce, maybe working in frontline positions at the bedside or even in managerial positions, they are expecting that now of the, of the organizations that they choose to be a part of. They want to know and see that the C-level is really prioritizing DE&I. And so having leaders who demonstrate that or have experience building those programs has become very, very important. And Rick, I just want to go back to one thing you said. I, I couldn't agree. I mean, it sounds like this list is incredible and spot on um, from the high level from what I see as well in our coverage. But Rick, when you talked about moving beyond content expertise, you said something about being a global thinker. Does that mean being really well informed? Does it mean being strategic, being able to look two steps ahead? I, I guess I would love just a bit more detail on how you can pinpoint that in someone versus per someone who is more content specific, like you said. So I, um, I'm smiling because I'm thinking of my, my current COO and my current CFO. And they work well together and do great things. Uh, but I look at both of them individually and I'll say it to them together and I, I tell them, I said, you ought to be able to do each other's jobs for at least a little while. I would know eventually when the CFO was doing the COO's job and vice versa. 
but you ought to at least have that competency to be able to, to do that. And that's saying a lot. And I actually have that expectation of most of my team. Now, again, I actually don't want my CFO doing the CNO's job. Um, but, um, but legitimately, there ought to be enough understanding and cross-pollination and capability to, um, to look beyond what you do every single day to move an organization forward. And I, I think when I think about the pandemic, that's exactly what happened. We all sat in a room with zero playbook. And we all had to just say, what are we going to do to get through this thing? And it didn't matter who you were. Um, and so I think that that was really powerful for the organization in building that capability to, to, to move beyond what you're used to doing every single day. And that's something that, you know, as I think about pandemic lessons learned, I would like us to continue as an industry. Um, getting out of, of, of the old way of, of, of breaking things up and really just looking at things a little more holistically and globally, no matter what your role is. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of how it looks to me. Yeah, I think, Rick, you made me think about just, you know, global thinking is kind of being an active listener and really being curious about what other people have to say and recognizing that, you know, in humility, you don't have to have all the answers. In fact, most often you don't, really. You don't... Uh, understand all the day-to-day -day processes and the things that are going through but if you listen carefully you know people will give you the answers and then you can kind of help remove the barriers or provide the resources or make the investments necessary to help them succeed so i think a lot of people are just coming to work every day looking to succeed um is the environment structured for success you know are they um, being given you know the resources to succeed and so often i think people are frustrated because they feel they're not you know given those resources which seems so simple but I always say the simpler it is, the harder it is to do it. <laughs> um, and so I think we just need to be more self-aware in that regard. Yeah. Well, I wanted to make sure our attendees with us today can leave the room with some ideas about uh, fortifying the pipeline, what works and what doesn't from your perspective. And this can come down to investments, this can come down to important conversations that need to be had. But I would love to just hear from you candidly and directly, what strategies do you consider most effective in fortifying the talent pipeline? And then what disappoints? what perhaps uh, you read about, you are aware it's worked elsewhere, but for some reason it didn't quite pull, pull it off at your organization and your experience. Jessica, can I turn to you for some high-level yeah. observations? Yeah, of course. Um, well, I'll reuse the cliche again, Rick, that you introduced, but it, it truly does start at the top. I mean, if there's not interest alignment at the top and total cohesion at the top, the rest of the organization will feel it. And so as you consider bringing new talent into the organization that's now going to add or you know, supplement that team, you really do have to make sure that they buy into the culture and ideals and values that your organization has and, and are able to really demonstrate that. Um, in terms of you know, if you are going to go to the outside to bring in new talent, efficiency and speed is key, bar none. And you have to go into that process really aligned with all of the stakeholders and decision makers about what is going to be most important in making that decision and then be prepared to move quickly. I also think um, another success just trait that I've seen is when organizations are open-minded to finding folks that maybe don't have the title that you're looking to fulfill, but they are interested in finding the candidate with a high ceiling and growth potential that maybe is in the step down below, but that there are developmental tracks or some type of pathway for that individual, maybe to either come in as a lateral move or to come in and assume that higher level position with the support and reinforcement of the folks around them to ensure their success. And candidates are gonna wanna know that too. 
The other thing I will say is that you have to understand your employee value proposition. If you're not able to say that very clearly and very candidly to the candidates that you're considering both within your organization and also outside, candidates will be able to call your bluff. And so you have to know what those things are. You have to be able to talk about how you are going to give them the tools. I love how you said that, Dr. Nygaard, to help your candidates succeed at all levels, but especially at the top, because I'm sure many people in the room can relate. It can be lonely at the top. Uh, it can be stressful. There's certainly a lot of sleepless nights when you have responsibilities, especially considering what so many leaders battled through over the past couple of years. And so knowing how you're gonna support your people to make them successful is critical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Dr. Nygaard, what would you add in terms of strategies that have worked and then those or any that have disappointed you? Um, I would just say I think you know working with individuals to develop uh, what I would call developmental plans and really put them on, you know, the words probably over years career ladders, um, but um, you know, is there a plan of action and do people feel you're authentic and sincere and care about them as individuals? Um, so often people get lost in an organization and really don't have that individual investment or personal contact and I think part of that is just the busyness of healthcare, well I'm too busy. And I'm saying well if you're too busy to sit down and have regular dialogue with your people then you know maybe leadership isn't really for you. Um, because I think that's what it takes, it takes the time to invest in people. Um, and so often what got us to certain positions is our ability, you know, to have knowledge. But again, I, like I said, I don't know it's about having knowledge about every last thing as much as it is about understanding, you know, what is needed by the people you're trying to, to lead. Um, I think in the absence of doing that and recognizing people, I think recognition is also important. You know, if you don't do those things, you kind of get apathy in the organization. You get disengagement and you get people just coming to work kind of punching the clock not giving their best effort, not focused on that. You might see that in terms of other, you know, metrics in your organization, whether that's quality outcomes, engagement outcomes, patient experience. You know, there's a lot of markers of how our workforce is really coming uh, forward. Mm -hmm. And Rick, let's check in with you for, for wins and, and flops in terms of how to build that pipeline, how to keep it strong, how to not fret that you're gonna have to scramble if there's a change. Yeah. I think a couple things is in terms of recruitment, uh, again, often we, we focus so much on what does the job need and we get the people that we need for that job and that's fine. But I think uh, kind of just picking up on, again, some of those key themes, recruiting with succession in mind is something that I think all of us say that we do. Uh, but I personally absolutely am guilty of looking at it and saying, boy, can this person do this job? <laughs> Not can this person do this job and then in three years can they move into the next level? Um, uh, and I think that that's something that we need to do. You know, I, uh, I, I think we've all seen uh, examples of that over, over time in, in leaders that we've had. So that would be one thing. Another thing would be board engagement. Again, this kind of goes without saying. Uh, if your board is anything like mine, it's populated with a bunch of really smart people uh, that have been very successful in other industries not uh, associated with healthcare and have actually done some really unique things. And so it's fascinating always for me as we talk about our succession planning and management of this pipeline with our board members, um, they, they actually bring to the table things that we never would have thought about. Um, and they kind of then look at us like, wow, you're about 15 years behind where you need to be. Uh, but it's really a resource. And, and sometimes we don't use our boards as well as we can uh, in that construct. I think the, the other piece uh, that I would say that the disappointments, uh, as I kind of reflect here, is, is really not diversifying your talent. I'm reading my notes here. Not diversifying your talent development, 
because you need to spread that internally. I want to make sure I get that right. Uh, because again, so often when we do this internal management of this process, we focus on the top performers, right? Mm -hmm. We focus on the three people that could be the CEO. Um, and, and sometimes we lose focus on some of those other pieces. So making sure that those strategies are spread across different levels and different domains across the entire organization, those are probably a few mm -hmm. things that I would just add. Ensuring that middle bench isn't taken mm -hmm. for granted or overlooked, terrific. We, we have about seven minutes left. Let's check in with our audience and see if there's any questions, anything we can make sure we spend a bit more time on uh, that was raised. And I'll do my best to repeat what, what it says so everyone on the other side can hear. Any questions for our panelists? I have one other one I wanted to probe. I think you know, Coach K's retirement got me thinking about whether healthcare leadership is going to see kind of the end of the CEO or C-level executive who spends 10, 15, 20 years in organization. Um, if we're going to see in, in regards to the more competitive recruitment element that you mentioned, Jessica, more of these three to five year stints, and that's going to become more of the norm. What, what are your thoughts on that? I have a couple. One is that, um, again, I think the younger generations that uh, we're employing, they've become accustomed to job hopping. It's become very normalized that I will go to an organization, maybe on a contract assignment or just for one to two years, and then I'll move on to the next to grow my skill set and to grow my resume. But I think the organizations that ultimately will win in this competitive environment are going to be the ones that really make the investment in their workforce at all levels to drive retention and to be able to develop and groom individuals across, again, all levels of leadership, ultimately all the way up to the C-level. Um, and I do believe that the organizations that really prioritize the retention of their people will win, and you will start to see assignments that you know, supersede that five to three to five year timeline. Uh, and I, you know, I have been with my organization for 13 years, so I'm probably a little biased in saying that, but I think there's incredible value when you grow up within an organization. I mean, the, just the tribal knowledge alone that those individuals gain about just all of the cultural nuances, the workforce, the challenges, the opportunities for improvement and advancements, it's really hard to be able to identify that in external talent. And so I think, again, organizations that are really looking within and not necessarily just at the high performers, but across the entire landscape to say, how can I really you know, make an investment here to develop and create programs that are gonna bring people up through my organization? Mm -hmm. those, those organizations, I think, will win in the long run. Mm -hmm. Great, well, oh, there's a question. Yes, go ahead. Uh, do you mind yeah. restating the question? Do, do you want to or do you want me to? Or? It was about Rick's uh, at Stanford, the having two people that could take your role. How do you reduce competition in that environment and ensure there's support uh, and that you achieve your goal and doesn't end up malfunctioning or going across purposes of your goal? So, good question. I, um, a couple things. I uh, make sure that they understand that that expectation is also true of them. So they have to be doing it on their teams as well. Right, so it's not just a, this person versus this person. If it's happening across all levels of the organization, it's less, um, it's less threatening, you know, as individuals. Now, I, I won't say that those dynamics don't present themselves occasionally. Um, I think there are a lot of things you can do. Um, I, I 
put them together on different teams uh, or on the same teams sometimes. I, I have uh, two of them right now that, um, that I'm working with and uh, we've got some pretty significant strategic things moving forward. And instead of appointing a chair of this group that's gonna execute this strategic activity, I've actually done co-chairs. And I've said, you two work together to figure that piece out. And it's actually helped, I think, the dynamics because so, they're working on the same thing, they're working for the same goal, those kinds of things. Uh, and I think just giving everybody opportunities to step up in different ways uh, and not isolating those opportunities to, again, just one or two people uh, that all of a sudden the organization's like, well, I mean, it's them that they're the ones that are going to move up, and so I'm going to sort of back off. So those are a couple of things that we do on a regular basis. And uh, again, it's not perfect, but uh, it does, again, generate this culture of excellence where you're continuing to move move forward and everybody's sort of trying to trying to get there. So that's been very positive. I imagine that too, that they have their own too, that they are responsible for ensuring the same empowerment is occurring. I imagine that also helps from people seeing this arrangement is too fixed. Like it's baked and set in stone, so therefore my chances of moving upward are limited. That's great. Thank you for, for your question. There's one in the back. Um, yes. Okay, great. great question. So who is responsible for really leading the charge with the younger generation coming into the workforce, into the hospital and health system, since the majority of health systems and hospitals are still run by um, the older generations? Jessica, any thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I do, I, I do have some thoughts on that. Um, well, I'll let myself into this answer, but we are, right? Th those that are in positions of power hold great responsibility to be in tune with the needs, demands, and expectations of their workforce. And so if you don't have systems that are gonna funnel up the, that feedback and that information to your organization, as leaders, especially at the top, we have to create those processes and systems and really prioritize it. Because when you give your people a voice, and I know this can seem scary, you become so much more in tune with the reality of what's happening in your organization and how your workers are really realizing the systems and the culture that you have in place. Sometimes it's easy to lead from the ivory tower. And we have to really work hard to fight against that and create, again, communities, and it, and it can't just be in town halls, right? It's gotta be really intentional, personal, um, sought after systems where you are gathering and collecting the information so then you can make more informed decisions and give your people a voice so that they truly feel seen and heard. I think that's critical for a productive workforce today. Thank you very much for your question. Follow up on that, you know, you mentioned the, the emphasis on DEI. Um, intergenerational workforce, sometimes you hear about generational preferences, generational beliefs, and sometimes those are discussed with a bit of a roll of the eye, especially as it pertains to the younger generations. Je Jessica, do you see the attitude shifting? Are we becoming more accepting and inclusive of how Gen Z might approach work than how baby boomers have? I, I think uh, the answer is both yes and no. I think that the, you know, the stark contrast between organizations who are getting that right and who are thriving and those that are not and who are really struggling with retention, costs are exorbitant to try and recruit staff into your organization, 